Katie Herzog, here we are. We are here, Jesse, ready for another podcast. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. It's cold and shitty in Brooklyn, but that's uh, normal this time of year. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. You might have noticed, um, I updated recently my Twitter profile picture. Did you notice that? Yeah, you look like a beautiful lady now. Not that you didn't look that way before, but even more so. Thank you, Jesse. Okay, so my new Twitter profile picture comes from our Reddit. Somebody, uh, this username is <laughs> FBSBSNS, so really uh, rolls off the tongue, um, posted new photos of both you and I that have been through some sort of face app filter. And I would say that you look like you look like you have adult onset microencephaly, or as I said on Twitter, it looks like they use forceps when they pulled you out of the womb. Like your head is just like smushed in this very weird way. But I look genuinely hot. I look like a Ukrainian supermodel. Like my name is Portia. I like I almost look like somebody that Donald Trump would brag about sexually assaulting. That's how hot I look. Do you agree? <laughs> but um, I, you look cute. I don't I'm know. Gorgeous, we, gorgeous. It, but wait, what? I, it's what is the algorithm exactly? Do we know what sh- they did to you to make you look this way? They apparently this is called yazification. I don't understand what that is. I think what <laughs> That's they the scientific term. Yeah, I think what they did is they put us through an app that it's like the app for if you were a woman. So it's an app for males. <laughs> oh, so this is internet. So it's like if you were a woman, this is what you exactly, like. exactly. So I put this as my as my Twitter profile picture because when I when I look at this picture. I see myself. Like for the first time, I understand what people say. This is who you have always been on the inside. This is who I have always been on the inside. I've always been Portia. Um, and so oddly, like I thought that people would sort of sort of respect my, you know, my new identity as Portia. Oddly, people don't respect it at all. And uh, like yesterday, I got a, a tweet from Alice Drager, friend of the pod, Alice Drager, and she said that she has to cover up my profile p- photo with her finger when she reads my tweets now. <laughs> That's, that's a bit much. <laughs> and and I've gotten like like a lot of feedback like this. People being like, I just, I can't, like I'm reading your tweets in a new voice now. But I just, I want people to respect that this is how I feel on the inside. And I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get plastic surgery to look like look Portia. Like yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm going to get facial feminization surgery, actually. Unfortunately... Insurance won't cover facial feminization surgery for biological females. It seems a little unfair to me, but I'm going to do a GoFundMe for it. So, Jesse, will you will you donate to my GoFundMe? Yes, if this is who you are on the inside, and the only way to get there is surgery, uh, you know who am I to argue with that? I really appreciate that, Jesse. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. This is this is really mean, but mine looks like. Um, there's often okay, often in like fifth or sixth grade, there's like a girl who just like is larger than everyone and developed yeah. earlier. <laughs> I look like that That's girl's you. I look like that girl's bat mitzvah photo. <laughs> she's you just too. like trying to dance with a boy but like to- towering <laughs> but she's over thirty. Him, and he's terrified. <laughs> and he's just 30. You do have nice eyebrows, I'll give you that. But the rest of it, the whole thing is just very disconcerting. We'll put we'll put a, a link to both of these in the show notes so people can see exactly how beautiful I am and how fugly you are. I wouldn't uh, – let's slow down here. I'm not – okay, I'm, I'm honestly looking at it. I'm trying to come at it objectively. I wouldn't say I'm fugly. I just look a little big, which is fair because I have <laughs> male – I'm a large male being turned into a woman. <laughs> 
It's not the size of you. It's the way that your forehead is like smushed. I think that's so disconcerting. Like your lower half is so much bigger than the, the lower half of your face is so much bigger than the upper half of your face that it looks like two different faces smushed together to make one face, which is actually what you look like in real life. So it, so it suits you. Exactly. This is like really adding to the, conver- the dumb online conversation about whether people can quote unquote change sex. I think it's true. You can, and I can't. <laughs> I can, I can change to sex to female. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, folks, please donate to my GoFundMe for facial feminization surgery. And then I'm gonna, after that, I'm going to get top surgery, but that's just implant. <laughs> All right. Katie, what is the name of this gender-bending podcast? This is Locked and Reported, and I'm Portia Herzog. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to – I'm Jesse Single. Let's just go with that. Jesse with an I-E. Uh, yeah, this is <laughs> – this is a podcast. What are we going to talk about? Uh, today, we have a really exciting show today. Uh, Jesse, do you remember Mike Pesca? He disappeared about a year no, ago. No. I don't no. know who that okay. is. Okay. Mike Pesca, for people who don't remember or never knew, he is a longtime host of The Gist, Slate's The Gist, or he was. He was also a longtime employee and contributor to National Public Radio. In, uh, I believe, February last year, so just about a year ago, his show, The Gist, was abruptly canceled Right before you were supposed to go on, not sure. Well, if <laughs> it was hiatus. Yeah, it was. It was hi. It was. It was indefinitely hiatus for eleven months. Which is always more mysterious than an outright canceling because it's hard to know what's going on. Do you want to give the little explainer of uh, how this story came about? Can I do so without saying certain words? Uh, yes, you can. You have okay. to. The word that you have to say is defector. Mike Pesca has always um, had like I think people like. The gist, because he's a little bit contrarian. He doesn't just swim along with the tides. And uh, around this time last year, we were talking about Donald McNeil being forced out of the New York Times because it's it's so crazy to go back and look at coverage of this now because so much of the coverage was so bad, which is a, a theme to which we will return. But basically, Donald McNeil in the court, he was on a trip for rich kids to Peru, where it's like you can get your kids; they get to go hang out with a Times journalist and like climb Machu. What sort of kid would want that, honestly? Oh, you are not from the kind of suburb I'm from. <laughs> You're well, right. also, it's more their right. it's also more their parents. It's, call, yeah. it's a college uh, thing. like resume building. They went to Peru with Donald McNeil. It's right. all very corrupt. Anyway, you pay they, and did ayahuasca with with Hannah Nicole. They Jones snorted powdered Peru. ayahuasca off of <laughs> Donald McNeil's supple body. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, he spent possibly tens of thousands of dollars on this. But so these kids, they go there with Donald McNeil. Donald McNeil's on this trip with him. He's apparently cantankerous, and he's he's the New York Times basically their best or was their, their like best COVID reporter. Yeah, exactly, a longtime science reporter. And on this trip, so he's with these kids. I, I think they're at a meal, and the kids are talking about uh, some scandal at their school involving the use of the N word. And Donald McNeil Jr. says, well, did she use bleep or did she say the N-word? And McNeil used the term. This was initially reported in the Daily Beast, quickly blew up, and it became this weird thing where all these people at the time signed a letter saying there were other accusations too, but it's very hush-hush. This is always what happens is when someone's under scrutiny, people are like, no, no, it's not just that. There's this other shit. And then one of the accusations was that he – he didn't treat a, a, sh- a shaman who was doing a touristy ritual with enough respect. He disregarded the shaman, which you never do because the shaman's going to curse you. He was playing Wordle. It, it was so vague that we don't even know if it was like – it was just – this is like when you're trying to destroy someone's career and you don't have a lot to go with, you go, uh, I was at the, the touristy uh, shaman ceremony and he disrespected the shaman. Anyway, long story short, he is – 
forced out of the Times. Subsequently, he writes all these Medium posts that exactly as you could have told if you'd read the Daily, the Daily Beast coverage was horrible because it was always so devoid of any details. It was clear that like very hard to say what's going on. The whole thing was a giant embarrassment for the Times because McNeil really didn't do anything wrong. And uh, as as a lot of people subsequently pointed out, but uh, to me, the highlight was Dean Bacay, the managing editor of the Times, telling Donald McNeil Jr. that he had, quote, lost the newsroom, which is just like I – Never worked in a place where me doing my job depended on all my colleagues liking me. It's like uh, it's not Congress. some sort of weird experiment. Yeah, it's like a weird experiment in direct democracy where your colleagues can just sort of decide whether you get to work anymore. That's conducive to good journalism. Anyway, mm-hmm. among many very embarrassing episodes at the Times lately, this was uh, arguably the worst because someone was forced out for literally no reason other than truly hysterical staffers, many of them on the tech side, not even the editorial side. So, very long-winded wind-up. Da- uh, Mike Pesca is talking this over on Slack uh, with his Slate colleagues. And, and, and Slack for people who who maybe don't work in offices. It's hell. It's hell. It's, hell. it's an instant messaging platform. It's a, a, basically a, a way to communicate with your colleagues that like is more immediate than email. Yeah, so hell. So uh, yeah. Mike Pesca is in hell talking to his colleagues about this. He's basically the only one who's of the opinion that Donald McNeil should not have been fired, Donald McNeil Jr. And... So it's hard to know the exact details, but but the the gist, as it were, is that Donald um, Mike Pesca is suspended from Slate, where he's worked forever, for defending the position that there might be some situations where white people can use the N-words, not as a slur, but as like in a situation like Donald McNeil Jr.'s, because that's the specific person he was defending. Just defending that position was enough to get him suspended. And then there was this this really hatchet job of a Defector article. Defector is um, former Deadspin folks and now sort of own and operate this uh, publication, which is successful, which I'm happy about, except when shit like this happens. So this was a piece by Kelsey McKinney that really just basically took any Slate staffer who had any negative feelings about Pesca, and there were plenty of them because he's the contrarian 50-ish white guy. And these are younger staffers with diff- different politics. So Here, here let, let me give you a quote here. I feel outraged, as Slate staffer told me when asked about Pesca's participation in the conversation. I cannot believe I had to watch him enthusiastically provoke people on whether or not it is appropriate to use a racist slur. Other Slate staffers that spoke to Defector expressed frustration and anger at Pesca's insistence on having that particular conversation. I don't want to be in a workplace where people feel emboldened to have this an argument. People's humanity is not an intellectual debate. He didn't start this conversation, by the way. He's just arguing a point, a point that would have been a completely mainstream anodyne position about three years ago. This idea that he did something aggressive, uh, the word harassment was used elsewhere in the piece, is just... It's ridiculous, and we need to call it out as such because this is what certain people in journalism do. They will take a conversation that five seconds ago was a normal conversation, and you were allowed to express different opinions on it and say, no, you can't say that anymore. That's you know borderline violence. The So I, I think all you need to know about this piece is the last quote, which reads, there are people who enable him to be who he is at work, one staffer told oh me. Oh, my God. The problem isn't simply that Mike Pesca is intellectually lazy and racist. The biggest problem is he's accountable to no one. So, so my theory: this is such an agree. You in journalism, you cannot just let one person anonymously tee off on another for no reason, other than there's no evidence Pesco was racist. I think a lot of the defector people are just straight up friends with the people at Slate who are anti Pesca. I really think that's the case. I think I've mentioned this before, like in some of Vox's coverage, where you're 
coming pretty close to just giving anonymity to your friends or friends of friends and letting them tee off on someone they're trying to oust. It's just really shitty journalism. And uh, yeah, that's the story we're going to tell today with a special guest. Let's uh, let's bring in Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca, the one and only. Thank you for joining us on Blocked and Reported. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It is good to hear your voice again. It's been a while. It really is. Yeah. It's been, I haven't actually talked in the last 11 months. I've been saving it up, so it's good to hear my voice too. <laughs> well, that was in your Slate contract that you're not allowed to say anything except when you, know, you have to maintain your voice. Right. And it was weird because I didn't know what would come out. You know, I was thinking maybe something <laughs> mellifluous, maybe a, 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 I don't know, a baritone, a, the deep basso profundo. It's good. It's the regular voice. Kind of this uh, Long Islandy thing going on. We should set the scene here. We had our assistant, Tracy Woodgrains, um, go over to your apartment and he rolled you out of a closet in that Hannibal Lecter <laughs> Silence of the Lambs thing, took out the ball gag, and then these are your first and, words. Well, first I told him, love your suit, but then it was exactly these words. Uh, well, I think we have a lot to discuss. I mean, do you – would you like to just sort of say what happened in your – from your perspective, to the best of your ability, and within, within uh, <laughs> certain uh, constraints – Yes, there is a there is an agreement not to disclose all, but I can disclose much, and I'll really try to answer your questions as uh, best I can. So, in uh, and, and Mike, before you start, look, no racial slurs. This isn't that kind of show, okay? I'll try not to, but you know, your Jewishness just comes through, and it's going to be really hard to locks, boy. Damn it! There I go. Okay, so anti-Asian is also fun. Israel's in Asia. Does that count? Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, so there was that incident with uh, Donald McNeil, the New York Times reporter, who was in Peru on a Times-approved trip, and to get clarity to uh, a girl, a high school girl's question, he uttered uh, the racial slur, the big one. And I think it was dealt with from from the reporting, I'm sometimes somewhat misreporting in the Daily Beast that came out, but some facts came out that um, that. There was a kerfuffle at the times at the time, but McNeil was allowed to stay, which I think and later expressed was the obvious conclusion to something of that nature. And then Ben Smith wrote a follow-up, sort of a more factual follow-up where he put the question put the question in an overall context of, you know, what kind of paper does the Times want to be? So this is posted in the Slack channel on Slate. And Slack I get is big at Slate, I think like a lot of news organizations, and especially so during the pandemic. And, you know, you can I think we could get into a little bit later about the actual effects of the pandemic and distance on comedy within the workplace and understanding or taking your uh, colleague's statements in best faith or worst faith ver version. But anyway, uh, I got in there and I perhaps imprudently, let me amend that, certainly imprudently, <laughs> given, given my long-term job prospects, I was the lone person of the opinion that what McNeil did was not necessarily a firing offense. And when asked, you know, well, why would you say that? Because this was the unpopular opinion at the channel. Wait, I, hey, sorry to break in, but every, every other person in the Slack channel who expressed an opinion said that for McNeil to have mentioned that term to clarify somewhat something on a trip with with kids automatically a firing offense 
Well, uh, no, not every other person said automatically a firing offense, but the no one said otherwise. And the general tone was, uh, here are the misdeeds of McNeil. They were some people, I suppose, were taking on faith the uh, misreporting of the Daily Beast. So there were statements that he was said to have made denying that racism exists. I don't, I don't really remember. But I do remember that there was no one voicing the opinion that, look, guys, I don't think that no matter how horrible or offended that uh, someone might be at this. I don't think given the bulk of the guy's career and what he's been doing and reporting during the pandemic, reporting that would come to earn him a Pulitzer Prize. I don't know that the punishment, if there is to be a punishment, is a firing offense. Well, how could you say that? And I explained, okay, so I think that, you know, obviously this is the worst word in the language, but there is something called the use mentioned distinction. He obviously wasn't using the word as a slur. I linked to an article by John McWhorter. And the reason I did that was not only is McWhorter, and in 2019, he didn't have a Times column and didn't write uh, his last two books, including one specifically about racism. But McWhorter is, of course, brilliant, I think, and a leading linguist and has been writing about this. And, and this is the really important thing, hosted a show on Slate, like he was currently a Slate podcast host. So I thought that might have some uh, benefit. I think probably in retrospect, that was triggering to people. And he's black. Yeah, right. It gives him standing, you know, in the eyes of many. Not politically, though. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, he actually, you know, other than, other than the things that everyone's upset about him with, he kind of is very much a mainstream, like center left guy, which I guess people don't object to, uh, people do object to more than I realize because I am too. So, yeah. In in the Slack channel, what was the, so, I mean, the use mentioned distinction is of course exactly right, but everyone, everyone I thought knew what that was. Although when, in my own discussions, I found out that maybe some people, it, it was this weird like retconning thing where as though we didn't have this distinction, but what did people make like sensible arguments for why McNeil should be fired? Or was it just sort of they were so outraged you were suggesting maybe he shouldn't be and that the moral outrage won the day? I would think it was more like the second. I mean, I wouldn't exactly use the words the moral outrage, but it, it just from a to be to be as, um, I guess, distance from it as possible. If I were someone running the show, I would see that this caused a tumult within the organization, that there were opinions being expressed. There was one opinion being expressed that upset a lot of people. I have to say, I have to emphasize this. I was extremely careful, of course, never to use the actual word. I also made a point never to use the phrase, the N-word, because I've heard that is triggering just to say the N-word. And in fact, subsequently, there have been some high profile stories of, say, a professor who wrote N dash 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 on uh, his blackboard, or maybe he handed it out in a sheet to a class as a hypothetical to consider a workplace violation. And this professor was you know, brought up on charges, suspended. He's a University of Illinois. Chicago guy, Jesse Jackson calls for the guy's firing. So I I was very careful not to use the words, not to use words that referred to the words. But But you were thinking it and they could tell, right? Probably, yeah. (laughs) I mean I think I think we need need a term. We need a term to refer to the N word. Like the N the N abbreviation can refer to quote the N word, which refers to the Right. You should just blank a few times. Or just like the after M word. But you know, you get you get an adjacent at that point. Yeah, so I was. I mean, I, yeah. sorry. I I understand some people are going to be be mad at us joking about this. So I just want to break in with fifteen seconds of earnestness, which is this is a word that has had a horrible impact on the English language and our history. And the idea that um, 
people don't understand that there's a difference between talking about the word and its impact and hurling it as a slur. I've just, I have never been able to believe that. And that's why I think I'm less nice and diplomatic than you. And I just think some of this is just opportunism and trying to use it as a way to get rid of, I don't know. We'll get, we'll get into that, I guess. I just I I don't believe that people don't understand this difference. Is what I'm saying. I don't. You know, I don't. One of the things that I've always done uh, in my life is to, and Joe Biden taught me to do this, is not to question <laughs> the motivation of others. He literally said that. He said that to uh, Sarah Palin in a uh, vice presidential debate. He was talking about Jesse Helms. So that may be true. I mean, there's a wide variety of human experience, and there are certainly some people who are opportunists. I also think it's probably true that some people, perhaps young people who were raised in a university system that emphasized harm and 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 talked about... You know, de-emphasized uh, older ideas of uh, resilience and talked about that, you know, your right to actually feel offended by these things. Don't deny that. Anyway, I do think there that it's quite possible that just being reminded of racism causes some people to get upset. And then there's the greater question of, you know, what does the rest of the workplace do when some perhaps beloved colleagues or black colleagues get upset. I would say a majority white workplace, especially a, you know, liberal organization responds by sympathy. And I understand that. I actually, what you said, Jesse, about, obviously we know the history of the word. I treat the word extremely carefully. I try to treat all words carefully, especially when I put them on my show. Um, If ever I was to consider putting this on my show, which has happened in the past, I 99% of the times decided not to do this and either say the N-word or just say, you know, a slur. There was a time when there was a quote when there was a a debate within the show about whether to use it. And I'll get to what the uh, findings of the investigation were. Oh, wait, there's an investigation. That's a tease. Come in for part two. (laughs) So what happens happens in the Slack channel is there's uh, what I thought was a debate. And the reason Slate uses Slack is has always been told it's to sharpen our opinions and to make our public-facing sentiments stronger, to stress test them. Um, I also knew that Slack can be a time suck. Slack can be frustrating. I, since... Slack was introduced at Slate. I really pulled off it a lot. But this was an industry news channel. And there were many times in the past when the predominant opinion at Slate was one thing. And I I wouldn't always get involved, but I would occasionally say, oh, God, okay, guys, I have a different opinion and here's what it is. And I wouldn't be mad about it, but I'd state it. And then many occasions, those differing opinions, not just turned out to be segments on my show. Sometimes I would invite other Slate writers on the show for a segment called Mike Debates Slate. Okay. That was a recurring segment on my show, all approved of, well, the audience loved it and approved of by management, but sometimes management would literally say, write that as an article for our site. You know, everyone here seems to be applauding the fact that Amazon has been chased out of Queens. You differ, write that. Or everyone here, no one here is excited by Bloomberg entering the race. I wouldn't say I was excited. I just noticed, noted that the guy had a lot of credentials more so than anyone in the Democratic race. So I wrote that. Well, and, and just to be clear, this is this is really in the sort of lineage of Slate. This is the kind of publication Slate was. It was sort of a cousin of the New Republic, and that was that's the whole reason a Slate pitch is. It's often a derogatory term. The whole idea is like you can get opinions here that aren't predictable, and I do think you helped fill that niche there alongside some others. It sounds like you're saying you saw the weaknesses of Slack, but you really saw it as part of your job, or it had been at least 
strongly implied to you by management that 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 the conversations that came out of there were were good for your show and well, good for Slate. I mean, it was explicit when you write when you engage in a debate in Slack, and then management says, "That's great, write this as an article." That's an endorsement of the process as it's supposed to work, and my role in it. And I always got the impression that. My voice was valued by management. Uh, when I was hired, it was probably right within the overall gestalt of uh, how Slate saw the world as the Democratic Party changed, America changed, Slate changed in terms of its uh, the political mix of the people there. I was always valued for you know being able to state reasonable views of a more centrist nature um encouraged to do so those writings and those podcasts got really good results in terms of the audience but you know they saw this thing as of a different category because i don't think whenever i wrote about amazon anyone got so upset and in 2020 when these things happened they felt they had to somehow address the fact that people were upset they had a lot of they had a lot of choices, and I could tell you what happened there. Yeah, and it's my fault. I keep interjecting. But so at what point does no, the Slack good. stuff get serious? Do you realize this is like – could pose a serious threat to your status at Slate? I yeah, I enjoy the interjections because, you know, for me, like if you – once you oh, look, live a bird. the life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not all Mr. <laughs> ornithologists. No, but what I'm saying is like you have to understand that for me, this has been a geyser, a fire hose of – well, the inf- of what happened to me, but also the criticism or potential criticism or having to guess what people's objections are. And I've always had the orientation. I mean, this is foolish. This is not how it works. But if you, you know, carefully explain yourself, you won't win people over, but they at least can understand <laughs> your side, right? I'm laughing because and- I've so- been through so many iterations in the last five years of, look, if I just explain what I actually think, yeah, maybe works. they'll disagree, but no yeah. way they could they could hate me for that. Yeah, yeah. Or, or that the people that hate you will be, there's always a portion of the people that hate you, but the institutions that you respect will look at the whole interaction as, well, Jesse did the right thing. He tried to explain it. Or Mike did the right thing. That's what we're trying to do. You know, some sort of productive discourse. Well, and Mike, you also brought this onto your show. And I I was a regular listener to the gist. And you often had your colleagues come onto the show to debate you. And which I always thought was was a was one of the more brilliant aspects of the show. You did this, I think, for at least for, for me, most memorably after Jesse's Atlantic piece about trans kids came on, and you had a robust and very interesting debate with some of your colleagues. But and so clearly that was part of your ethos. But how did that that sort of um, impulse to debate, that desire to ba- debate, how did that go over with your colleagues, not upper management, but your actual colleagues? Yeah. I think we all as humans have fall into the trap of thinking that other people think like us. Even when we know it can't be true, there's just a natural inclination to say that, okay, I'm a reasonable person and see the value of debate and therefore my debating partner will too. But you know, not always, right? And I always thought that I conducted a fair job and what we we didn't unfairly – these were people who worked with me. We edited the interviews quite carefully as we always did and always were after presenting the best side of both arguments. But you're right. It could be the fact that I was doing this – I was having people who I disagreed with on the show. I was saying, well, that's good. It's better that we had this argument. Uh, Where we are a half hour after having this argument is better than before. But it's possible that at least a few of them were like, I I, fuck that guy. He makes me look bad. Um, He has this audience that obviously agrees with him and not with me. I don't know. That, That thought could go on. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the response to that, if somebody doesn't want to debate you, I'm sure that they were allowed to say, no, I don't want to come on your show. Yeah, of course, of course. No one was, I, I didn't even, you know, I didn't sense that anyone was bullied into coming on the show. <laughs> I think some of it might have been, they don't like to look bad, but there's also, in the last five years, the idea of even having an open debate or discussion, there's a large and increasing number of issues where the mere suggestion there could be any other side to it is seen as tantamount to bigotry or harm. And and I think five or six or seven years ago, I thought that was an exaggeration or was restricted to college campuses. But I, I think you you see a lot of it creeping into mainstream outlets. So there could be a sense in which the ground shifted under your show and your sort of, for lack of a better term, classically liberal approach. And suddenly you have younger colleagues who just don't recognize that as valid. Yeah. And that is why both sides has become become an epithet, right? That's why, oh, you both sides did. I mean, both sides should not necessarily be the ideal, especially when there is more than two sides or less than two sides. But you can't insult someone. Well, you can, but there is a, a, a paucity of logic in saying, oh, you both sides did. And then having the audience nod. You told the whole yeah. story? How dare you? Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to what happened. This, I, yeah, what Jesse was saying. I think this came to be regarded as one of those things that there can be no debate on, or that a significant portion, a you know, some portion of the uh, people who were in that channel or who were reading those comments thought that you know we can't have someone taking this stance. Were these? all writers or were there like we've seen it at places like the New York Times there was a piece a while ago about how it was the, like the tech side was really involved in these debates about content was it all writers staff writers or or content people or was it all people coming from all over the company it was it was from i think all over the company there they all did separate yeah i think it was from all over the company but not all over the company, people who weren't writers and were included. Yeah. yeah. And did anybody jump in and defend you or defend your position at all? No. And were there were there people who were, you think, silent but did agree with you? Um yes. This is true. This is one one thing that people don't realize. Every single one of these internal blow-ups at a news organization that I have some inside knowledge of, and I think Katie will agree with me on this. There are always people who want to defend the person, but the temperature in the slack rooms where most of this goes down or the- Those are the smart people. The ones who don't say anything. Yeah. yeah. No, that's but that's what I'm saying. It, it gives a completely distorted view of how popular the, the position is. And I think I wish managers would account for that. And I don't know, maybe they did in this case, but I, I know so many situations where a lot of people were alarmed by what was going on. But um, I mean, the, the other thing, Mike, is it must have surprised you that this- um, even expressing the view that the word can be used sometimes was a now an unsayable opinion, given how many times Slate had done that exact same thing. That was part of that is part of my calculation, not just Slate, but you know, the entire media world that I worked in. And I realized things were changing, but there there are there are rules, there are practices, there are I you know, I, I thought of it like this. By uttering uh, the word or writing the word, is it a violation of rules? Is it a violation of actual practice? Is it a violation of ethics? Is it a violation of morality? And I kind of tick no to all those boxes. Now, I guess some people who objected would tick yes to it's immoral. It's immoral for a white person to ever say this word in any circumstances. And then 
you know, because like we talked about, I'm pretty stupid, I would say, well, I could offer some counterexamples. And then maybe even the person who said in any circumstances would say, well, okay, if you're playing documentary footage or well, okay, if you're quoting a court document. So usually people find that there's always an exception. In um, There was an article written about this incident and me and Donald McNeil by Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post. Oh yeah, I remember that one. And she came, I mean, the headline was, it is never okay to say it. And to buttress her point, she quoted Nicole Hannah-Jones. By the way, that is the order of her name, Katie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she, she, quoted, <laughs> she quoted Nicole Hannah-Jones as saying, look, white people should know, I don't have the quote in front of me, but white people should know you don't say this. This is just not said. There are maybe some exceptions of if you're giving a speech or in an academic context, but you don't say it. There are exceptions to which I would add, in some cases, in journalism, some cases, in nonfiction book writing. And there you have it. And there you have the exceptions. And there you have pretty much all I was saying. And I wasn't saying it was okay for McNeil to utter the word. I wasn't endorsing him or defending him or saying, as was later, I don't know, interpreter reported, we should have the right to say the word. I was just saying that it's not a firing offense. There is a continuum of offense, and I didn't think that the guy should be fired for it. Well, and you, I, I think it's also a lot of people got the the wrong impression that you actually mentioned the word within the debate within this debate, and you yeah. didn't, as you said, you didn't say the word. So you were essentially this all this whole fight, this whole thing was over an argument that you made, not even the word itself. Yeah. So I went back at the at the time this was happening. I searched the word. I typed it into the into the browser of Slate.com. I have to admit to that, um, but. But I, I did. I, I covered my eyes with the blindfold so I wouldn't have to see it, and uh, and then I looked up how many times this this word had been used on Slate. There are 404 different articles as of yesterday. I searched again yesterday um, that include the word, including three from 2021, 20, nine in 2020. Uh, some of your former colleagues, Tom Skoka, used it in six articles, Mark, jo- Mark Joseph Stern in three, Ben Mathis Lilly in 18 different articles. And that that's articles, so that doesn't even include include incidents. And so this idea that you that you made some some unsayable argument is directly refuted by the pages of the fucking magazine that you worked in. Well, I think my saying yes would probably be against the NDA, but I can't yeah. say no to that. <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying? Luckily, you included in the NDA can, clause the double the double reverse yeah. back clause. You can just so. nod vigorously. Mm-hmm. I can't say you're wrong, Katie. I can't say you're wrong. I literally can't say you're wrong. Okay, so so did you did you can you tell us did you bring up this particular argument within this debate on Slack? No, no. I think I may have mentioned something. I don't think I did actually. As I think about it, um, may, I you know. I guess I, what I should have said was something like that. But see how stupid I am? I'm still saying I should have said – no, I should have said nothing. It is clear that I just should have said nothing if what I wanted to do was keep my job at this organization. Yeah. Okay. So so what happens? So you have this you have this debate on Slack and then what happens after that? Well, it gets shut down and – Wait, shut down in terms of like did a manager come in and say stop talking the, about no, this? No, the entire company Slack shut down the platform. <laughs> no more Slack can bust. Yes, not Slate Slack, just Slack itself. <laughs> People, do you remember the great Slack outage? That was because of me. There was the trip. The trip wire was pulled. It's like an Amtrak in the old Dennis Miller joke. Great, we got stuck on the tracks because Gus thought he saw a squirrel. That was me. I was that squirrel. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it was. It was uh, the conversation was ended, and sorry, was ended by who? By management. Management stepped in to say we're stopping this. They just swooped in and were like, "This is this is too fraught a conversation to have." Yes. By the way, I think that's prudent at that point. You have a company to run and you don't want Slack to get to overwhelm things. And I think yeah, if yeah, you know, I were management, I would say this needs to uh, be taking place between the principals involved, me and my managers. Maybe we talk to some of the staffers. This is no longer uh, a debate that we're going to be having because obviously the effects are too big. Yeah. And, and Mike, what was your your mental and emotional state at this. And and I ask because I've I've been, you know, the one person on a Slack channel making some unpopular argument. And for me, it can get, you know, it's not like you're being yelled at in person, but there is this sort of sense of like, oh shit, this is bad. Um I I don't I can't remember my mental state at that time. I will say that I've been in that situation before and I've never felt any like I've never felt any emotion other than even if the discussion is, uh, let's say, heated or you know, quite uh, quite a disagreement, it's nothing other than will eventually be productive. I mean, a Slack discussion probably will be useless, but the point is to be productive, to have something that could result in a good argument. So that's how I always so you thought still, of it. So you still felt this way? I probably thought when I saw, I was kind of surprised. I didn't know if anyone would come out support me, but when the disagreement seemed to be, you know, overwhelming, I took note of that and I didn't change my tone. Someone in the channel said, you know, explain yourself. And so I did. And then other people in the channel said, this is, this is entirely unacceptable. And some of them were people I knew and were friends with. Um, and I tried to make a, at one point I made, you know, personal joke about the sports team he liked. And then another point I made a reference of not acknowledging the uh, other person's points, you know, hey, look, maybe you're right. I am just telling you what I think. I'm certainly conceding that your view on this could be right. Okay. So what happens then? The conversation gets shut down and then what? Well, this is where I probably can't go through every single thing that uh, Slate did, but I can tell you that the conversation gets shut down on, I think, a Monday. I do a couple shows, and then they tell me I'm suspended indefinitely. And then they tell me this was Friday. I was an hour before I was going to do an interview. And in fact... The interview was with uh, Mike Richards, who is about to be the new host of Jeopardy. And I was just looking at my questions for him. They would have been really good questions. It would have been great to have that interview out there. It would have been like, is this an audition for you or an ad- audition for other people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. And what, what, when they suspended you, what did they say you'd been suspended for? Uh, don't know if they clarified that. Don't know if they uh, listed a charge. But it led to an investigation uh, was conducted uh, during this investigation. I guess they brought in anyone who, well, I don't know. Um, During this, the upshot of this investigation, which was odd. And from my perspective, it was just, it was an odd experience. And I never really felt threatened by the investigation itself, but you never know, you know, an investigation into you could be, could turn out in ways that you don't expect. And did they interview you as part of the investigation? Yes. So the investigation 
from my perspective, you know, it was odd. I'd never been through anything like that before. I was curious to see how it would be conducted. It was conducted over Zoom with an outside lawyer. I never thought I, I always thought I never did anything wrong at Slate. I always stuck to all the rules. I always had support of uh, management on all my editorial content. So I knew that I had never been the kind of person who laid into staff or really did any criticism without a couple compliments around it. I also knew that, you know, luckily all my content's out there on my show and nothing's been, you know, had to, there was nothing embarrassing in my content. I also would build in every three weeks on the show, on the gist, I would do a thing called the Antan Twig, which is the uh, three-week period of Fortnite's 14 days and Antan Twig's 21. And every three weeks, I would just sort of round up any mistakes I made and own them up and own up to them. So yeah, I didn't think I had any, there were no skeletons. There weren't even... Yeah, there were no skeletons. There was nothing really for me to fear. And the upshot of the investigation was that I broke no rules. I did not violate any policies at Slate, which I always knew. No, no, that was their formal conclusion. You did not violate any rule. After all this, you did not violate any I rules. I don't know how formal it was, but I know that Slate <laughs> and I- truth- Were they wearing a tuxedo when they told you that? <laughs> That's right. But it was weirdly after Labor Day and they were wearing white. So it was like, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very informal investigation. Yeah. So- I know that Slate and I will say, I think, I I would hope, if asked, they will speculate, uh, if asked, did Mike Pesca, did the investigation find that he uh, broke any rules? They'd have to say no. One thing that I've found often happens in these situations, I'm curious if it happened here, is once a a figure within a newsroom or or outlet becomes uh, disfavored, shall we say, suddenly... Everyone is racking their memories to try to figure out ways they were victimized by this person. And there's a swarm effect where everyone's like, oh, yeah, and then he did this to me in 2017. Uh, Did you experience anything like that? Right. So there was no he did this to me. There were no personal um, allegations, I don't think. But, and you know, all I know is what the investigator asked me about. But there were some allegations, there were some there was some discussion of, did you have this opinion? Did you say that? Did you express this opinion in an edit meeting? And the answer was almost always yes. And the further answer was, I said it on the show. I can refer you to the tape. So if you have Wait, any- Wait, so they're asking you about your, literally in this in this disciplinary investigation, they're asking you about your political opinions, including opinions you've expressed publicly. They're not asked, they didn't say, I want to know about your political opinions. They said, did you have this opinion on, oh, I don't know. Non-binary on, pronouns, would that be one of them? The, yes. Did you, did you do a riff on how the word they is not going to replace he and she in the language, right? And I did. It wasn't that it shouldn't. It was that I looked at how language works and I think that it's unlikely that there'll be a huge they pronoun and he and she will be assigned to the dustbin of history. But- but doesn't that – having – doesn't that at least give the impression to to the – you know, our tender listeners, if that's asked during a disciplinary investigation, doesn't that suggest like to a certain extent that a very vanilla political view is not welcome at Slate even as a matter of debate? Why else well, would that come up during a disciplinary investigation? Well, you're inferring that that it's not welcome just because they ask about it. I mean I don't know what the conclusions were. But someone – he – the investigator asked about it for a reason. Someone raised it as an issue. I said, I gave my 
explanation. You know, I don't know if anything came of it. Maybe my explanation won the day, but it was something that was asked. I think they- But I mean, I I don't want to overblow this, but it warranted an investigation in Slate's eyes or this lawyer's eyes that you express an opinion that- he and she will survive as pronouns. And and this, just for our listeners who haven't heard this, I listened, after all of this happened, I went back and I listened to your show in which you talked about non-binary pronouns and you were incredibly respectful. And your objection was literally just that the term they has another meaning that is a direct contradiction to the new to the new definition of the meaning. None of what you said was hateful. None of what you said was at all bigoted. It was just an objection to, the, to, to this word that already has another meaning. Yeah, it wasn't an objection to it. It was a prediction about if it would survive <laughs> In the language, yeah. You said you said that you would that you would use the, that you would use people's pronouns. Um, there was another one like that. There was another riff I did, and it wasn't. This one wasn't good. I mean, when I say it wasn't good, I don't mean yikes, not good. <laughs> it wasn't that funny, but I did a little thing, a, a rhyming uh, riff about turf, and I talked about how <laughs> how turfs are you know trans exclusionary radical feminists, but Smurfs are uh, you know, and I. <laughs> I don't know. I invented some acronym. So you were investigated for making a like a yes. rhyming term. There was. I'm trying to. <laughs> you used this, the slur. This this actually all comes down to the fact that you used the slur. You turf. used the T word. Yeah, well, the I did. Yeah, but mostly I used the ERF part. You know, Werfs were some Star Trekky thing. Yeah. <laughs> can you really? Can you recite the poem now? Do you I have can't. It? I don't have it. I don't have it memorized or tattooed. This is a safe it. space. But listen, I'm telling you, it's dog roll. Okay, so so you're investigated for. Um, mentioning the word turf and for uh, it's hard hard to keep track of exactly what wrongdoing you're being accused of. I guess that's part of the point because they're just asking you questions. Well, were were there any potential complaints made about who you were seen as like associating with online? Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think that. No, no, that that didn't happen. But what was this part of the complaints against you? Like you, for instance, you had me guest host your show when you were on mm-hmm. vacation. Did people right. bring up like the people that you had guest host or the or like or the guests that you invited onto your show as part of the complaints against you? No, the only time that um, anyone ever said don't have this person as a guest was uh, one of the three people in this conversation. <laughs> And Katie, and Katie, and Katie, you, you guest host. I was the on show, the show. So, yes, and I was on the show every day. What, what, what year was that? Katie, when did you guest host the gist? I guest hosted in, I think, uh, 2019, probably. The answer is 2019, probably. So, I, okay, that would have been, I mean, it, things worked out for me. Here I am talking into an Amazon box with a mic in it, so I can't complain, but. Th- that would have been a big deal for me in 2019 to be able to host the gist. That, that's sad to me that um, I guess I would just argue that if my views are so – are viewed as so outside the mainstream that I can't guest host something at Slate. I'm not sure where that leaves Slate. I don't know. Well, it's also weird because my my views are, are much more radical yeah, You actually hate marginalized people in a way where I <laughs> – all of them. <laughs> That's really – I don't know, man. I uh, There's a lot going on in mainstream journalism I don't like. I'm glad I don't have to well, – it's easy for me to say I'm glad I'm not a part of it when I was uh, – they said I couldn't be a part of it. But I just can't imagine navigating these sorts of people who have such a insular view of what can and can't be allowed to be uttered. Yeah. Um, I think that as you know, I asked you to be a guest um, and when the show – when my show was canceled, you were scheduled to be a guest. That's so. Right. 
I think that's actually how we found out because Jesse was tr- like Jesse. Oh, I was just yeah. about to go on. Yeah, yeah, you, you were just about to go on, and you had e- you had gotten an email from the producer saying that your interview was canceled, and I think you emailed Mike, and your email bounced back. Yeah, yes, I remember this now. And so this was to talk yeah. about my book, not any of the the more controversial stuff. And I sort of thought when the interview was canceled that some twenty five year old at Slate had been uh, offended. It turned out it wasn't a big deal. You'd just been fired. So (laughs) not fired. But yeah, I mean, suspended. I'm sorry. That's also important. You were not fired. You made a mutual agreement with Slate to part ways and take the gist. But you but you were suspended. Yeah, I was suspended. And you couldn't have realistically ever worked there again. And and were you suspended with pay or without pay? Uh, A little of both. So <laughs> a little, we're going to give you a little money and a little not money. <laughs> it was more, it was more structured than that from an HR perspective, right. but there was, there was unpaid suspension. We're going to give you uh, exposure and experience <laughs> instead of, right. It's like a gig at the comedy cellar. Sorry, no 10 bucks. Yeah. Um, but you know, look, to be, this is who I am, to be extremely fair, no one said don't interview Jesse. No one to my knowledge said don't interview Jesse about his book. You were scheduled to be interviewed by me about his book. People really, really didn't mess with the content of my show. And when they didn't mess with it, but in the cases they did, it was usually because I initiated the conversation and I welcomed the feedback. And I also welcomed the feedback with my staffers. In fact, I couldn't do the show without discussing the issues I talked about sometimes beforehand you know, potentially incendiary conversations, especially given uh, current sensibilities. Uh, But I always valued um, bouncing ideas off them and discussing ideas. And that itself became a flashpoint. The way I did the show, the way I talked about ideas beforehand, not with all producers, but one or two specific producers, or maybe people who sat near us because it was an open office, that became a problem, apparently. You know, it was determined that the way I conducted the putting together of the show, which was, hey, what do you think about, I don't know, the what do you think about using they are marginalized people human? What do you stuff think? Like that. What do you know? Th- what do you think about the they pronouns? Do you think in a hundred years that he and she will be like thou? Because that has happened with pronouns, and I'd ask producers or sometimes other colleagues, I'd get an opinion. I'd say, oh, okay. Or here's another one uh, that I just thought of. When Joe Biden was first, I don't know if he was rising in the polls. He was he was um, uh, the front runner at a low 20%. There was a big resurfacing of what he did with Anita Hill. And I would ask people, younger people, from your people who were either upset with this or uh, had expressed something in Slack, I would say, let me ask you a question. Did Joe Biden, from your memory or what you know, did he vote for Clarence Thomas? They would often say no, but often they would say, yeah, he voted for Clarence Thomas. He didn't believe in Anita Hill. I'm like, that's interesting. I mean, I didn't just ask slate people. I asked other people I knew, but I got the sense that a lot of people in their 20s had the story totally wrong. And the only way you could do that, I think, is to actually, you know, chat with people and ask questions and figure out what they're thinking. But that way of doing the show... um, apparently was objected to, it turns out years later, objected to when Slate looked into it via the investigation. Mike, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one thing that comes up frequently in these, for lack of a better term, sort of cancellation campaigns where it's not actually about 
the direct offense. It's about the person. And I brought you up as as an example before of somebody who it probably wasn't really about this argument. It was about your your way of being, the fact that you wanted to debate these ideas, that you thought that arguments were made stronger by debate. And your colleagues, and I and I heard this from somebody who who used to work at Slade, who said, you know, Mike, his he was a great guy to work with, but I don't think that the younger people actually appreciated his impulse to debate. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think it was really more about you than about the N-word? No, I mean, I, th- you know, I can't exactly say because there are dozens of people with dozens of motivations, but just Mike Pesca's way of being or operating or putting together his show, that certainly was literally cited as the reason why we both decided that I wouldn't be able to continue working at Slate. The method that I put together the show, the way that I would have often vigorous um, conversations with people I needed to have conversations with in order to try out my ideas before I gave them to an audience of tens of thousands of people. And for the most part, I had, I've had like, I don't know, five to eight producers. It worked out great. You know, when I would hire a producer, often they were fans of the gist or at least became fans of the gist. And this is what they loved, but it didn't work out great for every producer. And I guess it was objected to for whatever reasons, personal, or I just don't want to have to hear this content. I don't subscribe to the show. I'm sitting two desks away and I'm hearing the pre-version of the show and I don't like it. That could, that apparently was going on. I mean, it seems like at that point, then it's just not a good fit with that producer, but you're the you're the talent of the show. Producers are more replaceable than talent. Um, so it seems like the natural the natural step for media there would be to reassign the producer not to end this very popular show. Yeah. Or you could you could, um, I don't know, kiss a bat in Wuhan, create a pandemic, and then everyone <laughs> would work remotely, and then yeah. no one would have to overhear anything they didn't like. True. But one of the claims that that was reported, and I, I can't remember who who originally reported this, was that you recorded a segment for the gist on the N-word, and you said the word in one recording, then had a, had a conversation with presumably with your producer about whether or not to actually say the word. You decided not to use that take, so you didn't say the word in the recording in the, the, the episode that went out on air. So is that is that true? Yeah, I can't. I, I, there's nothing that was reported, I think, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I won't say that they're getting that wrong. No. Okay. So if this was a conversation, so presumably you're in a studio, it's just you and your producer, you have this conversation, it's on the, it's on a server somewhere that you said the word, but it never makes it to air. How did that become common knowledge within the institution? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know how it became. I don't know if it became common knowledge, but I don't know how, you know, more than my two producers and the person, there were a couple other people involved in the production process would have heard it. Okay. So, but presumably they either made a complaint themselves or they went and went around and told other people within the organization. You know, I, yeah, again, I don't know. Um, it was kept from me. Uh, yeah, so I want I want to get to the sort of resolution of all this, but before I do, I mean, I'm curious. This idea that we should talk through issues that people disagree about stuff. Uh, a lot of Americans feel that way, and it's given rise to some very popular intellectual properties, including your show. Uh, I was thinking about the the only time I read a Slate article so bad that I wanted to do a newsletter about it was this. It was this piece in short about how. Um, 
Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, I know I haven't said his name in about a year. Someone remind me how to pronounce it. Mayor Pete. Just Mayor, Mayor Pete. Pete. Pete Buttigieg. 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 Uh, how he wasn't, the piece denied saying this, but it said he, it basically he wasn't gay enough. He didn't talk enough about being oppressed. He wears khakis. He wears khakis. He's a normie. And it was just a piece that was very hard to understand unless you have a very particular ideology about how, quote unquote, marginalized people are supposed to talk about how oppressed they are and how they're struggling, even though Mayor Pete has not really struggled by any um, definition. And that, to me, was the direction Slate was going and has been and going And this was by Christina Catarucci. I wasn't going to say your name, but if we have to. It was by Christina Catarucci. Yeah, I'm not, that's not a name. You don't need to repeat it. <laughs> Christina Catarucci. It was, it was a completely unreadable piece, but a very of-the-moment piece. And what's interesting to me is Slate is moving in that direction. I don't think there's any evidence that the people out there in America want that. I think it's for the 5 or 10% most whatever of the population, whereas a show like yours has mass appeal. A, without being mean to your former colleagues, do you think I'm on the right track there? And B, what, what do you think can explain the possibility that Slate and so many other outlets are willing to leave eyeballs and ears on the table? Is it just as simple as wanting to appease their own staffs? Here is my entire thought on that and that general idea. One, I'm going to channel Voltaire. I would defend Please channel death. Voltaire, finally. It's not really Voltaire. It's Voltaire's biographer, but whatever. And a woman, by the way, so let's not erase her. But the idea of defending to the death, you're right to say it, even if you don't agree. I absolutely had no problem with working for an organization that frequently published views that I did not agree with. I mean, there's it, the I entire Dear not- Prudence column. Well, which iteration? But oh, the Daniel uh, Mallory iteration. <laughs> yeah, but here's here is exactly how I thought about it, and I, I didn't have to go picking through. I, I didn't have to apply it or reapply it to different uh, specific articles. As a general principle, if I was going to work for an opinion organization, which I was going to work for, it didn't really matter what the thrust of their opinion, what the ideological center of their opinion was, as long as they were f- more or less fair and got facts right. I was absolutely fine with working for the opinion organization, but the other, but the other encounter consideration was that they had to be fine working with me and my opinions in my construction of these things. The way to have an effective opinion organization is not to have one set of opinions or a range of opinions that we all agree with and we can't go outside. The way to effectively work is to have a broad range of opinions and to realize that many people or maybe just one or two people are going to have opinions that you disagree with. And the way to deal with disagreement is, I mean, if you hate it so much, you could get another job or you could talk internally without trying to punish the opinion haver. You could talk about the content of the piece, but if you go about without punishing or trying to punish your fellow workers, I think you'll be fine. It might be hard. It might be hard for someone with a different orientation to work with that organization, but I do think that's what you have to do. I I mean, I agree with all that. My question is more it seems like you and uh, Will Will Salatin, I can't pronounce his name, maybe a couple others, you know, form this remaining old guard of folks who would reflect more mainstream opinions. Obviously, if Slate all along had been reflecting the, the full rainbow of opinions, but it just seems that hasn't been the case. More and more, it's just been sort of the 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 talking points for one very particular sub community, and I think maybe that's partly 
because things have gotten so constricted, you can literally get punished for expressing the wrong opinion? Or do you think I'm overstating the extent to which Slate got ideologically crimped the last few years? You you might be right. Uh, I would be more comfortable talking about it, you know, in terms of Vox or some other organization. But I do think that there is a it was it wasn't so much what the opinions were, what the ideologies of the writers were when I was hired in 2014, when Slate was started 20 something years ago. What matters is the conception of unacceptable opinions. And, you know, it's maybe a little bit hard because there is a gray area and there are opinions that are unacceptable and Slate should not engage in Holocaust denial. And I'd even say that there are some versions of opinions that are fairly mainstream that an organization could say, we're not trafficking in that. I'm not talking about QAnon. I'm not talking about Trump stealing the election. But if Slate wants to, sorry, if if a magazine, I wouldn't have drummed out Kevin Williamson. I really like that guy. I like his writing. But if a magazine wants to be the magazine that doesn't traffic in um, anti-abortion rhetoric, I think a magazine can do that if they make that clear. We're not going to be an anti-abortion magazine, full stop. We think this is human rights. The problem is when you start defining everything and defining down really reasonable opinions as a human rights violation and about humanity, not everything is Holocaust denial, right? Sometimes things are... Uh, New York State should get 90% of their dollar on Amazon taxes. And it's not always an existential threat to your humanity. Because once you start thinking of it like that, I don't see how you can have um, an opinion page that has interesting opinions. I think that you can only have an opinion page that has a narrow set of predefined opinions. And if you want to say, well, that seems bad for business, I think in general you're right. Uh, all right, so let, let let's get to the the final resolution. You're you're investigated. You are found. You are found uh, as you tell it, not guilty on all charges of. Well, you're found guilty of being problematic, but not in any like actionable sense of having broken any rules. You and Slate come to the conclusion that you should uh, consciously uncouple, as it were. Yes, yes. And what did that process? What did that process look like? It means I get the whole Coldplay catalog. <laughs> they get to keep Gloop. No, w- what the process is is where I am now. I have my own production company. It's called Peachfish Productions. We're producing the gist independently. Wait, you said Peachfish? Peachfish, yes. Explain. Uh, pesca is Italian for peach and fishing in Spanish is pesca. So it's- Oh, so now you're trafficking in ugly anti-Italian stereotypes. (laughs) Pro-Italian stereotypes. Oh, those- Yeah, yeah, that's right. Those goddamn peach eaters. Those fish mongers and (laughs) peach- So yes, so I have my own production company. I have my own staff where we've uh, paired with uh, Libsyn and AdvertiseCast to do the very important part of uh, the show of getting advertising. You know, we considered going subscription and there were so many people who said that they wanted to support us in that. But I do think if it's viable, and I believe it is, to have a show that's free, quote unquote free, you know, you got to listen to a couple ads or fast forward them to get through it. There's a value to that. So I very much wanted to be, I mean, maybe maybe some subscription model will uh, introduce itself later, but I just wanted to be the same show. Five days a week, uh, 30 or five days a week, 30 or so minutes a day. Five days a week. That is incredibly ambitious. <laughs> I'm so tired just thinking about that. It's such a struggle for me to drag this bag of bones to Mike <laughs> to talk to Katie like once or twice a week. But Well, Mike will not have to talk to me, so he's got that going for him. I, I do think um, 
in terms of which model, not to get too in the weeds, but in terms of which model works best, if you're doing it five days a week, the advertising landscape is just so different. Because there's so many more recent right. hits and it's just much better. That's that's an excellent point. I mean, if you're a show with 150,000 listeners and you get 10% of them to subscribe, you're a pretty rich show. If you're a show that gets 50,000 listeners a day and you get 10% to subscribe, you're a third as rich as that previous example. But if you do that show every day, well, you actually get a quarter of a million listeners a week, don't you? And that really adds up. Yeah, that's why that's why uh, Daily Show and the and the NBC Nightly News is a daily show because they have a lot of sp- slots to tell to sell to advertisers. And, and Mike, before you were at Slate, I, I first learned of your work or started hearing you years ago when you were a sports guy on NPR, and you were still a contributor. You're not a contributor to NPR anymore. Uh, is this related to the controversy over you not saying the N word? When um, I was suspended by Slate publicly, I was, well, they halted my appearance, my weekly appearances on NPR, and they said, you know, we'll check in when this investigation concludes. So what I'm doing is I'm just waiting to go back on the air, do the gist again, and maybe have a conversation with NPR and say, see, I'm the same guy who worked for you for 10 years, and I could still offer uh, something, I think, to your listeners. If you listen to my show every day, you or even ever, you would say, oh, yeah, that's not that's not some monstrous occurrence. Wait, wait. So NPR just NPR just dropped you without much of an explanation? No, they didn't drop me. They put it they put it on hold. And that would be that'd be weird otherwise, right? If I was suspended from one and still doing uh, NPR reports. I understand that. It what what the the crux of things is what happens once we rejoin doing the gist every day and what the decision that is made about that. Have you been paying attention to what's been going on at NPR for the last, or at least in terms of the content over the last, this is something that I complain about all the time. And and since you worked at NPR for a long time, maybe you can tell me, am I crazy or has the content actually vastly changed over the past? I mean, can't both be true? (laughs) Okay, good point. Good point. (laughs) Yeah, there are, I mean, of course the content changes as America changes, the taste of the audience or perceived taste of the audience changes as the people doing the shows change. Um, and there's also a big split between what's on the air and what's on podcasts. And uh, actually, the the on-air podcast split did cause a lot of the friction why many of the hosts left, which you, I know you talked about, hosts of color. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I think you read the Folk and Flick report. It really nailed yeah. it. It was the authoritative piece, which was about – uh, there are all these exciting opportunities to host a podcast. If you're one of the main people who host one of their big tentpole radio shows, maybe you are jealous of those opportunities. I left NPR. I mean, I saw – I forgot I forgot whose piece it was. I'm going to try to remember. No, I can't. I saw coverage of this where they talked about the people leaving, in this case, the uh, uh, hosts of marginalized groups leaving, who were so stifled and so stymied and felt they weren't given a voice. Well, read the coverage around my leaving NPR and going to Slate full time. That's exact the exact complaint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not allowed to be close to myself. Uh, I had a lot of things to say that just didn't fit within what NPR was doing. It's pretty rigid, pretty sclerotic, has been for years. Also, wonderful in a lot of ways. And and, you know, authoritative on the big issues, I would say. And do you think that they will find a place for you again now when your show is back on the air? I hope so, but I have no idea. A lot of it does depend on taste and dynamics. I know that I delivered for them good radio for the five minutes uh, a week or, you know, back when I was working for there, the 30 minutes a week that I was doing pieces. 
Yeah, I mean, you're being you're being, I think, more generous than I would be. I mean, the fact that you were investigated, I guess that would look weird that you're being investigated by Slate if they had continued to uh, to employ you as a as a contributor. That said, even reading the reporting of this, like you clearly, <laughs> to me, you just so clearly didn't do anything wrong. I mean, you weren't even accused of using the word. You were accused of making an argument, a, a good argument, the same argument that, for instance, I made on this show. There was nothing, I don't know, controversial about the idea that somebody, or at least obviously there was, but I don't think there should be anything controversial about the idea that somebody shouldn't be fired from their job for mentioning the existence of a word. Yes, but I don't expect major media organizations yeah. to be brave. I expect them to be careful. I expect them to be prudent. I expect them to be a lot yeah, of things. But brave. you know, we don't necessarily want bravery, which is not to say cowardice, right? I would just, I would just call it prudence, and we'll see what happens. And and what can people expect from the new gist? Is it going to be the old gist? Yeah, and that's that was really important to me. Uh, that's really what I want it to be, which is I'm going to come back with a week's worth of shows and from day one, you'll be like, oh, this was almost like nothing happened. I mean, there'll be a couple references. Uh, I won't not talk about the past, but there'll be a couple references in the early weeks about maybe what went on. We'll see how satisfied the audience is with that. I'd just rather not dwell on it. I'd rather not be, you know, like one of these people who was canceled and drummed out of journalism and then started a show called Block the Road. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, I'd rather have I'd rather have my beat be if I can. You know, the whole world and everything it was before. Though to be earnest in a way that's not in keeping with the show, I do think what you guys do is both very valuable and very entertaining. Thank you. Thank if you. you do want to go the IDW route, there's some faculty openings at the University of Austin. You might want to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> Also, Toronto. I hear Toronto has a new position. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, um, you have a you have a very good attitude about all of this, and I'm wondering if, and maybe that's just your personality that you're sort of an upbeat guy. Did you ever have a sort of you know dark night of the soul moment? Was this difficult for you, or and have you come past it, or uh, or were you sort of you know the chipper Mike Pesca the entire time? There were dark nights, and uh, Christopher Nolan was not involved, so the narrative wasn't as <laughs> clear as you'd like to be. No, there were dark nights, and what it was, I would uh, sleep for like two hours and then wake up, and the mind was spinning, and. What the problem was is I didn't exactly know what I was defending myself against, right? I didn't know. So I'm a public figure. I understand that people don't want to listen to someone they think is racist or someone they think is, you know, not who he presents himself to be in public. And so I was thinking, okay, but what what is the argument? What is the counter argument? Tell me what the charge is, and then I could tell you what the counter argument is. And so maybe I'd read something like the Margaret Sullivan piece. I'm like, well, this this seems threadbare. Is this really what I have to argue against? Or I'd read and mostly ignore comments, uh, the comments section of a piece that ran uh, where they quoted a lot of slave people off the record. And most of them were in favor of me, but some of them really got things wrong. So if you don't know exactly what the uh, what the ask is, if you don't know exactly what the charges against you are, it's very hard to rebut them and know what to say and know what the strategy is. So, you know, that kept me up. I have this thing called anandamide, which is the bliss molecule. I know Jesse doesn't have it, but I'm not anxious. No. I don't feel anxiety. Do you know about it, Is Jessie? this a real thing? You ever hear of it? Uh, no, I just, I just remember we talked about this the one time we met in person. By the way, you took me to a bar with an excellent grilled cheese sandwich. You're so. 
you're still you're still getting over, over that. I'm right? still thinking about the grilled cheese. Sandwich. He has the grilled cheese molecule. Okay, what is this thing? And how do I get it? No, he's just like a happy-go-lucky guy in a way us miserable fucks never will be. And it's just all how you're born. Is this a real biological, imp- yes. like, genetic it's called, thing? Really? It's called the bliss gene. And just as people can be, you know, wired for depression, there are some people who, and they found it because they know that, like, marijuana needs a receptor. Anyway, they back-engineered it. And they found this thing. I think that most of the experts hate the name the bliss molecule. But how it shows up is people like me, and by the way, I've never had a genetic test. It just like every one of the factors of people who have it applies to me. I don't feel anxiety like normal people do. And I didn't realize this until I was in my 40s, which is not to say I don't worry about things. I just told you about worrying things. But when things aren't in my control, wait, I had a breakthrough. Maybe the reason that I was worrying about things was that they weren't in my control and that there was a question about it. Interesting. So I... I worry or I think about things if I have a big task to do the next day, if I have a big speech to give or a big interview, right? If I have a big interview and maybe it's tense or maybe it's just high stakes, I'll often think about it. So maybe I'll, you know, have these thoughts racing in my head as I go to sleep and when I wake up. But I generally don't dwell on things that are out of my control. I just really don't worry about them. Maybe I don't have the bliss molecule. Maybe I have privilege. But anyway... (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah, because I have this, I'm generally, to your your question, I've tried to be upbeat, but it's been really tough. It's the worst, uh, I would say it's the worst 11 months of my life. I got married uh, four weeks before, five weeks before my suspension. It's been extremely hard on my wife, who's the CEO of my company, and I couldn't like reconstruct my life without her. So yeah, and I've talked to a lot of other people who've been through this, and most of them have been through it worse than I have. You know, some of them actually did something quote unquote wrong. I don't know if it's worse on people who did something wrong or people who really feel that they've been misunderstood. Can I, as the guy without the bliss molecule, and because you're too nice to say any of this, or I don't think you actually think of this, I, I'm disgusted how these campaigns go down, and I think your colleagues' behavior range from cowardice to just being really shitty people to try to destroy a colleague's reputation, career like this when they, you know, you have to know deep down they haven't really done anything wrong. Uh, it really permanently damaged Slate's reputation in my eyes even more, and I hope people leave. Some people will just. Take their money to you and the new venture, their ears to you. I, I, I'm always torn on this. I don't. I want people to have jobs in journalism, but certain institutions are becoming complete basket cases, and I think it's truly toxic. And I'm sorry you went through this, but I'm glad you have the bliss molecule. Well, Thanks, man. And Mike, one more question before we go. Did you have? I know that McWhorter, John McWhorter, he said something publicly about this, and then he ended up, you know, leaving Slate as well. I'm not sure if there was a correlation there. Um, did other people from within the organization publicly speak up or was it all sort of back channel? Sorry, man. Like, I, I hate that this is happening to you, but I have to cover my own neck or whatever. With McWhorter, uh, definitely correlation, if not causation, I would say. Interesting. That's yeah. awesome. I hope they lost him because of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's doing pretty fucking well without Slate. Yeah. He's been he's been very uh, supportive of me. A lot of people have. I mean, Jacob Weisberg, you know, gave a great quote to the New York Times, and he means it. Um, people people are understand. There's a number of ways that people deal with it. So the direct answer to your point is there is no current Slate employee who has gone on the record and saying, actually, I stand by this guy. And I understand why. A number of reasons. Job security is a big one, but I also think there's the tendency. First of all, a lot of people there absolutely are 
there are some people there are very thrilled that I am gone. That is absolutely true for whatever reason. But there's a bunch of people who I know because I talk to are not happy about it, but you know, they they feel like they have to have the strategy of sticking to the important work that they do. Maybe they define it as important work. Sometimes I know that their work is important. And is it really worth saying the right thing in this one case and jeopardizing not just their paycheck, but the work they're doing? And then there's this other dynamic where I really think Slate is full of people who, you know, are uh, progressive, right, and see themselves as good people and are good people in many cases. And when you see black colleagues who are outraged, you feel sympathy for them, or perhaps you've internalized the idea that like when a black person expresses grief or harm uh, or an emotion, it's not for me as a white person to question that. That's a dynamic that's going on. I think people want to be good people. And so how they define being good people in a moment where so much high emotion and accusations are swirling is to back off a little bit and not get in the way uh, and not back up the cause of all the tumult that's, you know, causing their organization to be put in a precarious position. I I will say like, even though I just ranted about this in, in practice asking, you know, someone who's 40 or 50 or 60, who has a mortgage and a family and one of the few good remaining jobs with benefits in journalism to do the right thing in the moment when an institution is going a little bit crazy, uh, that's actually hard to do in practice. And I do think it takes a lot of courage. So it's easy for me to rant about them, but you're asking people to really put themselves at risk. And the difference between having a good job in journalism and not having one is profound and life-changing. I know this. If someone else was the Mike Pesca in this situation, I would have said something. I would have at least raised the issue of process, fairness, what's the charge. I mean, and I you think did. I, that's why you got fired. That's you did right. That for Donald I McNeil. think that there's proof. Exactly. <laughs> if I was someone else in that, if I was someone else uh, involved in uh, whatever discussion or whatever public-private discussion Slate was having about me, and I knew the dynamic was, oh, Mike Pesca is on the chopping block because he stuck up for Don McNeil. What's the incentive for me to stand up for Mike Pesca? It seems to be it seems to be the axe all the way down, and I would be pretty stupid to to slip my neck in front of it. Okay, so the the moral is don't defend people. <laughs> don't do what's right. Lean no, into don't it. Don't you understand? The morals have the right have the right opinion. Yes. Don't you get it? <laughs> yeah, have I'm you sorry. learned nothing? Have the right opinion. I have not learned it. I definitely have not learned yeah. anything. Well, Mike, uh, I'm so glad to hear that you're coming back uh, to not the radio, but to the podcast, podcast airwaves. Um, the show starts on Monday the 26th. Is that right? 25th? What day of the week is it? Hey, keep going down. One, one less. 24th. 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 Thank you so much, Mike. And everyone check out the uh, newly resurrected gist. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. So that was Mike. Uh, yeah. What, what What did you think of his... Sort of approach to this controversy. He is so fucking cheery. I do not I know, understand it. I fucking hate he, it. So I, I also wonder if this like bliss molecule that he maybe apparently has, if it also in some ways puts him in danger because he lacks yeah. the anxiety that would maybe tell normal neurotic people like you and I, like, oh, danger, 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 danger. And so in some ways, this thing that makes him really pleasant to be around and really charming and gregarious in some ways might actually be bad for him, like the people who like don't feel pain. 
Yeah, it's like, I mean, there's like, I don't know if any of this is anything other than pseudoscience, but like, there's like an evolutionary psychology theory that if you're a member of a group that's just been like chased around over the years, you develop more anxiety because that's podcasters. adaptive, like podcasters or Jewish people to equally oppressed groups. Uh, being neurotic and anxious is adaptive. Wait, Mike's Jewish, right? He's a little Jewish. I think he's like okay. a quarter. But then he's also Italian and, you know. <laughs> what what more needs to be said is what I'm saying. No, but my point is I, I think there's something to that idea that if you're not anxious, you might not have the same self-preservation instinct because you're like, oh, it'll work out. I'll be able to talk my way out of this. Yeah. And that clearly – I think that probably worked for much of Mike's career and uh, that moment has just passed. But I'm really thrilled that he was able to take his show back and he doesn't – one thing that's great about this is that he doesn't have to start from scratch. He gets his old feed. He gets his old subscribers, a lot of whom I'm sure are going to be absolutely thrilled to hear from him. Um, and I'm I'm thrilled as well. I'm really glad this has worked out for him. I wish he was more of a troll and he had just started a new show called The Gist G-Y-S-T with the exact same music and branding <laughs> and just like begged for a lawsuit that would have brought him more attention. <laughs> Uh, that's your move, Jesse. You don't have the you don't have the bliss molecule. I, I have the you have the troll molecule. molecule. <laughs> the yeah. troll, just shaped like a little troll. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else? Housekeeping. Yes, we have a subscription program. If you go to blockedandreported.org, you can get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. Jesse, what have we done so far this month? Dude, the, the most recent one is crazy because I don't want to give anything away, but it involves Moose's potential incarceration. Oh, yes. Moose is uh, he's a well-known prevert. 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 Mm-hmm. He's a prevert. Uh, yes, we did one show on on, on Moose's, uh, Moose's sexual degeneracy, and then we did another show on, what was our first one on? Well, the degeneracy one, we also talked about the New York Times and youth gender transition, which is a new subject for us. Yeah, I've never, never uh, talked about that one before. And what was the other one? I need you to reach back into your memory here. Oh, we did the Lindsay Ellis thing, which is a really good controversy. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. So um, if you guys want to join us, that's blockedandreported.org. There's a great and growing community over there. You have access to our comment sections, which is – it's it's like really – it's actually very interesting. Yeah. You said actually. Why are you surprised by that? <laughs> For the internet. For the internet. All right. So that's housekeeping. Oh, yeah. We also have merch at blockedandreported.org. Just click on merch. Buy yourself a, a tote uh, or a mug. a mug or a shirt. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, if you defend Mike Pesca for defending Donald McNeil Jr., you should be fired too. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, please support my GoFundMe to transition to a hot woman. <laughs>